Shalom, I'm Gad Deshi, and today our topic is, Why didn't Achav kill Ben Hadad? So first of all, if I can ask everyone to silence their phones, and if anyone has any comments or questions, please hold them till the end of the lecture, I'll be happy to field them at that time. Also, very important, they don't hand out these uh, feedback questionnaires at the end of the class, but please make sure online to fill out the feedback sheet so the administration can have a better idea of what people like and don't like. From me. <laughs> so why didn't Achav kill Ben Haddad? Well, the first question I guess that people are asking themselves is, who's Achav? So we'll start with a brief introduction. Achav is the king over the northern kingdom, Mamlechet Yisrael. We're dealing with a time period after the split of the kingdom. The split of the kingdom took place after the time of Shlomo, where Yerovah ben Nevat took the northern kingdom and ten tribes, and two tribes were in Malchut Yehuda by the son of Shlomo Rechavam. And this is the continuation of the Shoshelets of the different kingdoms in Yisrael. Achav is the king. So let's open up to the first mention of Achav. You'll have the Psukim also on the slide. Melachim Aleph, Perek Tet Zayin, Pasuk Kafchet. Again, Melachim Aleph, Tet Zayin, Pasuk Kafchet. Vayishkav Omri im Avotav, Vayikaver Beshomron, Vayimloch Achav Beno Tachtav. So we have Omri who passes away and his son Achav succeeds him to the throne. Ve'achav ben Omri malach al Yisrael b'shnat shiloshim u'shmone shana le'asa melech Yehuda v'yimloch Achav ben Omri al Yisrael b'shomron esrim u'shtayim shana. So Achav ben Omri, he becomes the ruler over Yisrael and he rules for 22 years in parallel to melech Yehuda whose name was Asa. So far, so good. Just the standard opening in Sefer Melachim for introducing kings. Very boring statistics. This one, the son of that one, rules for this long in this place. But then we get to some excitement in Pasuk Lamed. Vayas Achav ben Omri hara Adonai mikol asher lefanav. A very severely critical Pasuk against Achav. He does the evil in the eyes of God more than anyone who preceded him. Vahi hanakel Bechatot Yarovam ben Nevat was katanalav. It was light in his eyes to follow in the footsteps of Yarovam ben Nevat. Yarovam ben Nevat is known to have done evil. He established the golden calves that are worshipped in Bethel and in Dan as an attempt to replace the Bet Hamikdash in Yehuda. And these, this was child's play for Achav. And what did he do that was more severe than that? Vayikach isha et izevel bat et baal melech sidonim. He got married, but he didn't just get married. He got married to a particular woman, Izevel, the daughter of Etbal, the king of Sidon. Now this marriage is not a marriage out of uh, passion, out of love. This is not the story of Shimshon and Lila. We have a political union between Yisrael and Sidon. Sidon, we're dealing with the period of time, which is the beginning of the Iron Age. Sidon is the, perhaps a capital of iron production. It also is a port city that allows for a lot of imports of luxury items and travel routes. And this is something that Achav wants to get in on. So he makes a treaty with Sidon. As part of that treaty, the union involves also getting married to Izevel. Vayelech vayavod et ha-ba'al so it's not just political, but part of this alliance is that he also bows down to the Baal and espouses that worship, apparently while still in Sidon. So we have the official king of Yisrael giving credence to the Baal as a form of worship, as a god. And not only in Sidon does he do this, but Pasuk Lamed Bet, Vayakem Mizbeach Baal Bet HaBaal Asher Bana B'Shomron. He establishes a Mizbeach for Baal, and he builds a temple for Baal in Shomron, in the capital city of Amlechet Israel. We now have a temple for Baal. Vayas Achav et Asherah. Achav continues to do bad things. He also establishes the worship of Asherah. Vayosef Achav la'asot lehachis et Adonai Elohei Yisrael mikol malche Yisrael asher hayu lefanav. He continues to do things that anger God again more than anybody else before him. So are we getting the picture here? Achav, is he a good guy or a bad guy? He's bad. He's very bad. He's bad, the worst guy in town. Well, we're going to find out in a minute. That's a very good point. So Achav is again a bad fellow, but let's see what the icing on the cake is. 
The worst thing, apparently, that the text left for the last, as the crowning uh, achievement of Achav's wrongdoing, is Be'yamav bana chiel bet ha'eli et Yericho. In his days, in the days of Achav, Chiel built Yericho. Ba'aviram bechoro yisda. When he established its foundations, his eldest son, Aviram, died or was killed. And at the end, when he, he fixed the doorways to Yericho, his youngest, Seguv, died. And apparently implied in here is that all the other children in between died throughout the building process. Just like God promised Yehoshua bin Nun. Well, let's take a quick look at the uh, pasuk underneath this one that comes from Sefer Yehoshua. And Vayashba Yehoshua ba'etahilemor. At that time, when they finished conquering Yericho, Yehoshua swears as follows: Arur ha'ish lifne Adonai, asher yakum ubana etair hazot et Yericho. Cursed be before God, the person who gets up and builds the city of Yericho. Vivchoro yeyasdena. Familiar words, right? We just saw something very similar. In his eldest, he will establish its foundation. Ubitziro yatziv delateha. And when he fixes his doors, that's when his youngest will die. Well, we have a complete word-for-word word, uh, compliance, but Yehoshua cursed. That's exactly what happened when Chiel built Yericho. Uh, the only problem is, what's this doing here? We want to know what Achav did that was bad, and now we're hearing about how Chiel was such a bad guy and he fulfilled the curse of Yehoshua. Well, the only key word that we have in Pasuk Lamed Dalet to connect this to Achav is Be'yamav. During the days of Achav. Well, so you might say, and some have actually suggested, that the building of Yericho took place under the auspices of the king. He issued the building permit. Maybe he even donated royal funds towards building uh, Yericho, just like he just built the temple for Baal. He also contributed funds to Yericho. But it doesn't seem to be that that's the thrust of the matter. It's a chronological uh, issue. It doesn't say Bichsafav, only in his days. And as far as being under his auspices, we already know that for years no one rebuilt Yericho. Was that because there was a king standing over them saying, don't build Yericho, I have police force waiting. If you, get, if you start building, I'm taking you away. So that didn't, isn't what happened. They didn't build Yericho because people were afraid of the curse of Yehoshua. So what is it exactly that is the crime of Achav in the rebuilding of Yericho. So let's... Okay, well, I'll save the comments for the end, but I appreciate that. So we have the idea... Yericho in the Shomron, in Mamlachet Yisrael. Alright, so now we have the idea that the fulfillment of the commands of God in Sefer Dvarim is what we find when we conquer Yericho. The Lotechayekol Neshama command that applies to the seven nations it allows for no tolerance. It has to be complete annihilation. And indeed, when we have Yehoshua conquering Yericho, the text attributes the words Vayacharimu as, as a parallel to Kiacharem Tacharimem. And for the Lotechayekol Neshama, for not leaving anyone alive, the text tells us Meish Vead Isha, Minar Vead Zaken, Vead Shor Vasev Vachamor from man to woman, from young to old, all the animals, a complete annihilation. This is exactly what God wanted from us. And that's what Yericho stood for. Now, as we progressed, the Torah tells us that the reason for that annihilation is, We're annihilating the local inhabitants in order for us not to be influenced by their ways, not to adopt their evil practices, their abominations. And, this is perhaps the reason why we're going to have a connection to Achav. What did Achav um, broadcast to the people as the message when he was marrying Izevel? Well, the message that he was saying was, well, we're going to now adopt religious tolerance. We're now going to espouse the Baal. We're now going to be intermarried with people from foreign nations and who worship foreign gods. And that's perhaps one of the reasons why Achav is attributed with the wrongdoing of Chiel, Be'yamav, meaning that his role model is that you're allowed to have religious tolerance, and this is antithetical to the message of Yericho. When people would pass Yericho, they would see the burnt pile of the city, and that would serve as our national monument of our zero, zero tolerance towards religious uh, uh, influences. So we need to remember Yericho, and you should all remember Yericho, because we're going to be bringing up Yericho later in the lecture. 
But another idea of Achav's wrongdoing with the rebuilding of Yericho is that it's meant to teach us that it was an equally self-destructive act. Achav's marrying Izevel as well as Chiel's rebuilding of Yericho. Now, you can ask yourself, as Chiel is rebuilding Yericho, he starts building, he sets the foundation, and his eldest son dies. Doesn't it strike him as odd that the beginning of the fulfillment of Yehoshua's curse is coming true? And as he's continuing building, the rest of his sons are passing, he continues building until the last one. He didn't get the message, he didn't get. He didn't even think about it, that maybe bad plan, not a good idea. So some commentators want to say that for that very purpose, really Chiel <coughs> wasn't experiencing the loss of his sons um, accidentally, but rather he was performing child sacrifice. And he was per- killing his children in honor of these Canaanite practices. And that was why his children died. But I think that the idea of self-destruction is perhaps the idea that's also being conveyed by Achav in that he knowingly is espousing this relationship with Sidon, with Izevel, and that's going to prove something that's destructive for the Israelite identity. Well, we got an idea in our topic. We said, why didn't Achav kill Ben-Hadad? So now we have an idea who Achav is, but who is the second character here, Ben-Hadad? So Ben-Hadad is the king of Aram, of Syria. And the first time we see Ben-Hadad in action is in Perek Tedvav, Pasuk Yudchet, which is on the slide. You can look inside as well. Vayikach asayit kol hakesef v'hazab anotarim be'otzrot bet Adonai ve'otzrot bet ha'melech ve'itnem b'yad avadav ve'yishtachem ha'melech asa el Ben-Hadad ben Tavrimon ben Chezion melech Aram ha'yoshev bedamesek lemor. So we have a situation in this parak, in Perak Tedva, which is not our main topic for today, but Ben-Hadad is being called upon by Asa, the king of Yehuda, in order to help him out. Asa, the king of Yehuda, was in trouble because Baasha, the king of Israel at the time, north of Melech Yehuda, was going to war with him. And Asa had no way of winning that battle, and he needed some help. So he wanted to call in Ben-Hadad, which is even further north, to attack Baasha, Melech Yisrael, and this way, Baasha would leave Yehuda alone. So Asa, in order to cajole Ben-Hadad to do this, he gathers up all of the treasures in the treasury, both of the temple and of the royal palace, and he sends them with his, with his messengers to Ben-Hadad. And he tells him, Brit, beni u'benecha, ben avi u'benavicha, hine shalachti lecha shochad, kesef v'zahav, lech hafera et britcha et Baasha, Melech Yisrael, says, I'm sending you this uh, bribe, which is gold and silver. Take it. You know, we have a long-standing relationship, the two of us. And I want you to break your treaty with Basha Melech Yisrael, so he'll leave me alone. So Ben Hadad listens to Melech Asa, and without going into further detail, he indeed starts up with Malchut Yisrael, and that saves Asa from destruction, but we have the idea that Ben-Hadad is the king of Aram, and he can be swayed, he enjoys Kesef Vezahav, it's something that motivates him, it's something that is going to serve in our parak as well, as one of his motivating factors. So we know who Ben-Hadad is, and now we're going to approach our main text for today, which is Perek Chaf of Sefer Melachim Aleph. So, Ben-Hadad, we're going to see whether he's good or bad. So Ben-Hadad... He is uh, prominently featured in Perek And Perek is a long Perek, so I'm not going to read it all inside. I'm going to provide loose English translation of what's going on in the text. And I'll point out some key Hebrew phrases as we go along. And those will also appear on the slide. So we're in Perek of Melachim Aleph. Ben-Hadad gathers up his forces and the forces of another 32 kings. Now, these are not really kings over nations. These are sub-districts within Aram that he gathers together. He has all of his chariots, and he lays a siege to Shomron. Shomron, again, is the capital of Malchut Yisrael. That's where Achav is. And he, Ben-Hadad sends these messengers to Achav, telling him, you know, all of the things that you have, the gold, the silver, the women, the children, all of those things are mine. Basically, surrender. And Achav realizes he's no match for the force that's up against him. And therefore he says, you're right, everything that you just mentioned, it's all under your jurisdiction. Ben-Hadad sends messengers back saying, oh no, you kind of misunderstood. I didn't mean just like some uh, loyalty oath. I'm looking for actual physical transfer of all of these items. I want them all. You have to give them to me. 
So at this point, Achav gets into a little bit of a panic. But uh, he has 24 hours. Ben Haddad said, I'm going to leave you 24 hours if you decide to uh, give them over, great. And if not, then we'll deal with things another way. We'll have to go to war. So we can do this the easy way or the hard way. So Achav calls out the elders. And he says, listen, Ben Haddad is looking for trouble. I told him he can have jurisdiction over everything and he still wants to have them physically. He wants to take them away. What should I do? So the Zekenim answer, Lo tishma velo toveh. You should not listen and you should not agree to these terms. Well, Ben Hadad, uh, Achav sends one more parlay of messengers to Ben Hadad, still with a very humble tone, and tells him, Tell Adoni HaMelech, go tell my master, the king, Ben Hadad, that his servant, meaning referring to himself, Achav, as a servant, I can do what you asked in the beginning, but I can't do this last thing you told me about. That we can't do. Well, Ben Hadad flies into a fury, and he swears, Ko li Elohim v'cho Yosifu, says, so help me the gods, in plural, that if I don't lay waste to Shomron. Well, at this point, Achav realizes it's all over, and he's going to have to go to war. So now he sends back a quick message to Ben Hadad without any of the niceties, and he says, Okay, not so fast. Okay, it's not over till it's over, right? Literally, don't let someone who's fastening their belt with their sword to go out to war, they shouldn't boast. As if you already came back from the war and you're already unfastening your sword. We don't know what's going to be in the battle. So sure enough, they, the battle preparations are underway. And a Navi of Hashem, unsolicited, comes up to Achab and says, You know what? All of this multitude of people, you're going to win. God is going to give you the battle. You're going to win this battle. You're going to know that I am God. We have a religious aspect suddenly to this battle against Aram, against Ben-Hadad, that until now just seemed to be something over riches of Kesef v'Zahav. Well, Achav continues, he asked the, the, the prophet, well, how should I go about this? What battle tactic should I take? Who's going to be first in the battle lines? And he says, You take your commando team, 232 young officers, they're going to lead the battle. And then Achav continues to ask the Navi. He says, oh, and who's going to finish off the battle? So they go first. So who goes after that? So he says, you and then the rest of the army. You're going to be after the initial commando group. Okay, so Achav gathers up all the people to have the whole army. right? He's making a total draft, a conscription for everyone to fight off Ben Hadad. So how many people do you think we have in Mamlechet Israel fighting for us, right? We left 600,000 people from Egypt. How many people of all Mamlechet Israel for a big battle? 7,000 people. We have 7,000 soldiers to fight off Ben Hadad. In addition to the 232 uh, commando unit. So, Achav has these people leave the besieged town at noon. Now, this doesn't seem to be such a bright idea because... The minute you leave a besieged town in the middle of the day, you're spotted right away. It doesn't seem to be a, a brilliant plan, but we'll soon see how that plays in the favor. But by that time, because the uh, Ben Haddad's forces were expecting perhaps an early morning surprise attack, uh, by the time noon came, they were already off of high alert. And uh, in fact, so much off of high alert that Ben Hadad himself and the other kings, they're already sitting in the sukkah in the, to get some shade from the noontime sun, and they're drunk. They've been drinking, they're drunk, they're smashed. So now, when these 232 people come out from the town, the outlooks, the, the, the scouts tell Ben Hadad, hey, we found these, the whole bunch of people, they're leaving the city. So, Achav tells them, Im leshalom yatsa'u tifsu, Ben Hadad, thank you. Im leshalom yatsa'u tifsum chayim. If they came out for peace, tifsum chayim, tifsu otam chayim, capture them alive. And if they came out to battle, then you should capture their lives, meaning you should kill them. Okay, now that's a unique interpretation. Unfortunately, I didn't find that anywhere else, but that seems to be the most logical way to interpret the verse. Um, other people wanted to explain that these two phrases, tifsum chayim, and Chaim Tifsum really mean the same thing. Capture them alive no matter what. And that the reason why Ben Haddad said it was because he was drunk. And so he issued this directive without really understanding what he was saying. <laughs> but I think Chaim Tifsum means Chaim Tifsum Mehem, capture from them your, their lives. 
So sure enough, they come out. By the time those scouts go to f- figure out whether the, the commando group is out for war or for peace, they're already be- being killed. Vayaku ish isha. Every one of the commandos kill the counterpart that they have in the enemy forces. Yisrael is triumphant. The Ben Hadad has to run away. He flees on his horse. And thank God, Israel is triumphant. The Navi comes to, to Achav and tells him, well, even though you just won this battle, you got to get ready. Because next year, we're going to have a rematch. And you got to be ready. You have to have a new tactic about what you're going to do. Figure it out on your own this time. So Achav is being given homework and he has to figure out what to do for the next battle the year after. Now, how did we win this battle? What type of element of surprise did we also encounter, aside from the idea of the noontime? Well, we also have the idea that Ben-Hadad had told Achav, you have until tomorrow, 24 hours. But Achav didn't wait for tomorrow. Achav, in the same day, at noon, he sends everybody out. So already by preempting the uh, strike of of Ben-Hadad, he already has some element of surprise working in his favor, and that's why the pasuk, when the Navi tells him, that's the key to the military strategy that allows him to surprise the forces of Ben-Hadad. Well, we get a nice interlude now. We have a spy in the enemy camp, the narrator, and he comes and tells us what they're talking about in the camp of Aram. And he says, listen, the Avadim of Ben-Hadad tell Ben-Hadad, the king, you know why we lost that battle? Because their God of the Jews, Elohe Harim Elohehem, they were, he works really well on the mountains. And we have chariots. And chariots don't work well on mountains. We need to draw them into the plains. And then, if you draw them into the plains, for sure we'll win. And you know what to do? You should replace everybody that died with another soldier. And every chariot that they took with another chariot. Get the same exact number and we'll show you that we can definitely win this battle. And that's what happens. The next year, just like the Navi said, Ben-Hadad gathers up the troops, re, uh, re, regroups his forces. And again... A Navi comes to Ben Hadad, to Achav, and tells him, you know what? You see all these people, because they said that we only win in the Harim, we only can win in the mountains, God is saying, we're going to show them, you're going to win this battle too. Vidatem ki ani Hashem. And again, suddenly we have a religious overtone, and you will all know that I am God. Well, the Jews again are overpowered. It looks like it's a terrible scene. The Jews are a minority. Kishne chasifeh izim, the text refers to them. It's like two little herds of goats. Verses, ve'aram mil'u et ha'aretz. Aram filled the entire earth. Versus these two little flocks of goats of Am Yisrael. Well, the battle begins. And just like the Navi said, Israel is triumphant. There's seven days of waiting. On the seventh day, they engage in battle. And on that seventh day, a hundred thousand soldiers of Aram are killed. And Ben-Hadad runs away. Cheder Bechader. He's running into the city of Afek, which is where this second battle takes place. And he is hiding in the city, a room within a room. While that's going on, the wall of the city collapses on the remaining 27,000 soldiers of Aram that have also run into the city. So we have a devastation of 127,000 people of Aram being killed. And again, Ben-Hadad is still hiding. So his Avadim, these same guys that uh, promoted this whole battle to begin with, so they're still dispensing free advice. And they tell him, listen, you know what? We heard that uh, the kings of Yisrael, Malchei Chesedhem, they're very merciful. And maybe... If we get dressed up like we're mourning and we have chavalim beroshenu, if we have ropes on our head, but what does ropes on our head mean? So ropes on our head, uh, perhaps the best interpretation is nooses around our neck. We'll walk outside with the noose around our neck as if to say we understand that we're totally within your control. Please have mercy on us. So if we get dressed up like this and we go out and we plead for our lives, maybe he'll keep you alive. So Ben-Hadad doesn't really have much of a choice. And he says, okay, so go out and see if you can negotiate that for me. So sure enough, they go out and they meet Achav. And uh, they say, you know, Ben-Hadad avdecha, how quickly the tables have turned, right? Suddenly now, Achav is, is being referred to as the master and the servant is Ben-Hadad. He uh, is pleading for his life. And Achav, as if he didn't hear that sentence, he says, oh, is he still alive? He's my brother. He's my brother. He's my ally. Uh, of course, but where is Bring him out. So they go, oh yeah, yeah, your ally. Yeah, we're going to go get him. We're going to go bring him out right now. So they bring him out. And the big surprise, as he approaches Achav, Achav doesn't kill him. 
and he brings him up onto the royal chariot, his own royal chariot, and they're having a powwow, and within the next two psukim, they already have a treaty. And Ben-Hadad gets to stay alive, and ruler of Aram. And uh, ben Achav, he gets to have a couple of cities that uh, Ben-Hadad took from his father, and Ben-Achav can also have some trade rights in Damascus. Well, it doesn't seem to be very proportionate, and it really brings us to our question again of why didn't Achav kill Ben-Hadad? Well, could it be that the reason why is because the people, the Avadim of Ben-Hadad were correct, Melech Chesed, is Achav a very merciful king? It doesn't seem that he's very merciful. He just killed 127,000 people. All right, And he also know, in a very famous piece in Perak Chaf Aleph, which we'll touch upon a little bit later, is in the parashah of Kerem Navot, in the vineyard of Navot, right? Achav is uh, accused by Eliyahu and Navi, by Haratzachta Vegam Yarashta. Meaning, did you also kill him, Navot, and also you want to inherit his vineyard? So you are absolutely despicable fellow. So it doesn't seem that he's really a Melech Chesed. And perhaps finally is the characterization of the Avadim of Ben-Hadad. Now, what did they say in the beginning? They said, Elohe Harim Elohim. The reason why they won was because they got only works in the mountains. Is that correct? No, that's not right. And they said, oh, if we go in the plains, then for sure we'll win. Well, was that right? No, that wasn't right either. And then, I said, maybe if we get dressed up and they did, he'll spare your life. That wasn't really true either because Achav is ready to grant him equal status as his brother, as an ally. So that also wasn't correct. So I think that the last point of the Avadim of Ben-Hadad, is also incorrect. So let's find out what it is that's perhaps uh, driving this uh, force of why it is that Achav is keeping Ben-Hadad alive. And... One of the things that we need to pause and take note of is despite our very clear characterization of Achav as a bad man and an be- evil king, we have this Perak in Perak Chaf, a very surprising uh, outlook on Achav. We have Achav being respectful of an Avi Hashem. He has a whole dialogue. He gets instantaneous responses for his questions. He says, who should go out first? He tells him. Well, after that, well, he gets response time like Moshe Rabbeinu. What, what is it that Achav, he looks like a great character here. He defends the honor of Am Yisrael, and it doesn't look like God's too angry with him, right? God gives him two miraculous uh, victories over Aram and over Ben-Hadad, with a wall falling down and collapsing on people. So this doesn't look like it's something that God is angry about, until we get to the end of the Perik in per- Pasuk Membet, where it says, Ko Amar Hashem, Yan shilachta et ish miyad, because you let free this man who was destined for destruction, meaning Ben-Hadad, your life instead of his life, and your nation instead of his nation. So we see that God is very angry, right? This definitely was not what God had in mind. He had something else planned, and we're going to try to see whether or not we can figure that out. But before we get to our main question of why didn't Achav kill Ben-Hadad, let's think about another question. Which is, why is Perekhaf where it is? Well, why does this bother me where Perekhaf is? Well, let's take a quick look at the surrounding materials. So we started with the intro to Achav in Perek Tetzayin that we already went through in detail. And then in Perek Yudzayin, chapter 17, Eliyahu brings the Batsoret, a drought, to Am Yisrael. And in that Perek, also Eliyahu performs lots of miracles, like a Babasali, he gives people endless flour and endless oil, and then he resuscitates an almost dead boy. Very exciting, not our topic. Perak Yudchet, we have the showdown between the Baal and God on Har HaKarmel. Eliyahu summons all of the prophets of Baal, and they have a showdown there to see whether or not the God Baal will respond or whether God of Israel will respond by consuming the sacrifice that's waiting for it for them at the top of the mountain. So sure enough, the whole day, the prophets of Baal try to get a response. There's no response. And towards the afternoon, Eliyahu calls out instantaneous. Again, God answers him with a fireball, consuming the entire korban, the sacrifice, and the mizbeach, and the surrounding waters. Everything was destroyed. And the people shout out, Hashem hu ha'elokim, Hashem hu ha'elokim, a demonstration of complete faith to the Jewish people and to God. And following that, Eliyahu takes the prophets of the Baal and slaughters them and kills them all. As a result, when Izebel in Perak Yutet, in the next chapter, hears about this, she says, by this time tomorrow, I'm going to make you like one of them. You're going to also be killed. And so Eliyahu runs away, 
he wants to give up. He he's in the desert. He finds his way to Chorev to Har Sinai. He has a revelation there, just like the Jews had a revelation at Sinai, and they, the debate there about the nature of God. And God teaches Eliyahu, Lo barash Hashem, Lo baesh Hashem. It's not in the nature forces of nature. Ella called him Amadaka, the still and silent voice. So after all of these wonderful stories of Eliyahu and the Baal and Izevel, then we run into our Perek, Perek Chaf, two battles against Aram. Okay, so we change topic. Okay, I can live with that. But then we get to Perek Chaf Aleph, and now we're back in storyland of what goes on in the kingdom of Israel and how bad Achav is and how he manages to want to have the vineyard from Navot. And because Navot refuses to sell it to him, to exchange it for him, Therefore, Izevel gets into the picture. She arranges trumped-up charges against Navot. Navot gets executed. And on the way down to collect his uh, vineyard, Achav is stopped by Eliyahu, as we mentioned, with the charge, And God condemns the whole kingdom of Achav to destruction, which is followed by, surprisingly, what seems to be externally Achav's uh, penitence, his tshuva to God. And God says, oh, you know what, because of that, we're only going to bring the destruction in his children's time, not in his own time. So that wonderful story is followed again by another dry battle account of the battle against Aram in Perek Bet, where there's a third battle uh, that takes place in Ramot Gilad. And at the end of that battle, Achav dies. So if we're looking at the different types of things, we have to ask ourselves, the points to contemplate is, why is it that we're dealing with a Perek, Perek Chaf, that doesn't mention Eliyahu? Right, we have Eliyahu Navi in Perek Yud Zayin and Yud Chet and Yud Tet, and then in Chaf Aleph with Navot. But Perek Chaf, we have a Navi. The guy is coming to tell him that Achav is going to win, but he has no name. He's just the Navi or Ish Elokim. Why is it that Eliyahu is not mentioned? If it is Eliyahu, if it's a, why wasn't he mentioned by name? And if it's not Eliyahu, why is he suddenly not on the scene? Similarly, in Perek Chaf Bet, we have a different Navi. Navi is uh, of uh, Michaihu Ben Yimla. But Perek, Yud, Perek Chaf interrupts the appearance of Eliyahu. Secondly, we have this zigzagging set of characters, right? We were dealing with Achav, Izevel, Baal, Eliyahu, and now we suddenly switched over to Achav and Ben Hadad. Those are the, the characters that we have. Finally, the scene. Where is this set? The first few Prakim deal with inner Israel happenings, activities that are going on within Machut Israel. But the two battles that are taking place are involving the international sphere, the international arena against Ben Hadad. So why is it that we have this back and forth between the Prakim? Finally, I think we all can sense that we started out with something that were stories, and then we suddenly got interrupted with, oh, here's a, here's a nice battle. Here's a battle scene for us to take into account. So it's like alternating genres. Now, what's a genre? Well, a genre, as you see here is a particular type of literature, painting, music, film, or other art form, which people consider as a class because it has special characteristics. So there are times where we can identify what it is that we're about to read uh, without even reading the words. We just see it. There's a visual cue about how the, 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 the author is giving us the, his material to see that we know right away what it is. So, for example, I'm about to put on this uh, next slide. Right away, think what it is that you're about to see. What is this? Moda'at Evel. This is a sign of someone mourning. And the minute you just see the black outline and the bold in the middle, you say, this is a sign of someone passed away. But if you take a closer look and you understand what's written here, you realize that this is really a spoof on a sign of mourning. This has nothing to do with someone passing away. It's a joke. But our initial reaction is, you know what it is before you even read it. It's only after you have time to focus on it that you realize that something, someone was pulling one over you. So now, we have a similar idea when we just look at this. This is a wedding invitation. You don't need to see who the names are. I hope no one knows who these people are. And, uh, and we have this in the Torah as well. When we look at certain passages, when we look at Shiratayam, for example, we know this is a Shira. It's in a staggered form, what we call Ariach al-Gabel Without even reading the words, you just see this, you know you're dealing with Shira. But we have, in addition to visual cues, we also have certain key words that tell us what kind of a narrative we're about to encounter. So, for example, once upon a time. So now we know we're heading into fairy tale land. So we know what kind of thing we are expected to read. 
Similarly, if you were to follow something that said, whereas, in consideration, therefore, heretofore, everyone hereby agrees, so you know this is going to be some legal document that you probably want to avoid. <laughs> the man who made this of good use, to good use in uh, biblical studies is this fellow here, Herman Gunkel, and those glasses look really tight, but um, he was the father of form criticism, or he's attributed to be the father of form criticism in biblical study, and form criticism seeks to define what the function of the literature is that we're looking at, and also this zitzim leben, which is the situation in life when this genre would be used. And for those of you who were here with me last year, you can add this to your literary toolkit. So the idea is that when you approach a particular text in Tanakh, you want to understand when it is that that was going to be said in the life of the ancient Israelite. So for example, if we have a Perik of Tehillim, like this one in Perik Kufnun, this is known as a hymn. A hymn meaning something that we're going to praise God with. And we look and we see what are the elements that make up this type of a Perik, a hymn Perik. So we have the beginning, Hallelujah, is a call to praise God. We are followed by why we're going to praise God, Hallelujah, Big Burotav, Kerov Law, because of His greatness. And we end off with Hallelujah. So we have, again, this call to praise of God. And these elements is what we, allows us to identify the parak as a parak that's going to be known as the hymn. So, Herman Gunkel went on to say that we have a number of these types of forms, whether it's in Tehillim or whether in their Chumash, and these are the things that allow us to identify what we're about to read. However, as time went on, people realized that trying to figure out whether or not this type of a parak was going to be said by someone on their way to Beit HaMikdash or on their way out from Beit HaMikdash was getting very speculative at best. And so therefore, people decided to focus more on the elements that make up these types of prakim and see if we can understand and appreciate the literary value that it has. So when I'm going to refer from now to in terms of forms and genres, I'm not dealing with the historical Zitzim Laban one, I'm only going to be focusing on the form and function of the prakim. So if we look at our prakim here, I tried to color them out in terms of what we would naturally assume are the genres that we're dealing with. The ones that are in blue, the prakim of Yud Zayin, Yud Chet, Yud Tet, and Chaf Aleph, those are all epic prose. That's all stories. It's something that we are looking towards. It gives us inspiration. Eliyahu Navi, worship to God. And Perak Chaf and Chaf Bet uh, are battles. They're battle narratives, historical annals. And they seem to be, as we've mentioned before, that Perak Chaf is out of place. If we really wanted to make some sense of everything here, uh, if we had our druthers, what we would do, we would move Perik Chaf uh, instead of Chaf Aleph, like this. Oops. All right, well, it was supposed to move. So Perik Chaf <laughs> was supposed to move down to where Chaf Aleph is, to where 21 is, and 21 back to 20. So then you would have had the two battles against Aram flush up against the third battle against Aram. And that's indeed the order that we find in the Septuagint, in the Greek translation of the Tanakh. They have the order of the Prakim switched. And we can understand that perhaps this is one of the reasons that drove Tirgum HaShivim, the Septuagint, to adopt that switch of Prakim because they understood that something is gnawing at them, that the, the wheels aren't turning smoothly here. So moving on, we also see here the idea of what is a battle narrative. We understand we have keywords that we mentioned before. These are all the semantic field of battle narratives that allow us to know that we're dealing with milchama. Oh, here, this is going to be it. So there you go. <laughs> Very nice. So we moved on from getting the battle narratives together, and now we have to understand why is it that our Masoretic text didn't leave these parakim together. So, we left with our two questions. Peret Chaf, why is it where it is? And why did Nachav kill Ben Hadad? And now we're moving on to getting to our answers. Well, we looked in the Tanakh for our answers. We didn't really find too much. And now we're moving on to the field of archaeology. And this is a Kirk monolith. This was discovered in 1861 by a British archaeologist, John Taylor, now on display in the British Museum. And this monolith describes how Shalmaneser III, and he's the king of Assyria, of Ashur, um, went on a military campaign and was seeking to conquer the Levant. He wants to capture the Middle East. And as he got closer, he captured Aleppo, hometown Aleppo, Khalab, he got captured, and then he moved on to a place called Karkar. And at that place he encountered an alliance of 12 kings. Amongst them are 
Achav, and uh, Melech Aram, and the king of Aram. And they managed to thwart his attempt to capture the Middle East, the Levant, and he stopped in his tracks, even though he describes it as a victory. We understand that he kept coming back to that same place and kept trying again, and he wasn't successful. Now, from now on, when I'm speaking, just so people don't get confused, Assyria is Ashur, and Syria is Aram. Everyone knows Assyria is Ashur. So now, if we look at the map, you can see that the uh, the movements of the Assyrian troops began in Ashur, they went to Aleppo, they got to Karkar, whereas the coalition troops all came from the south, they were all locals, they came together and they all battled at Karkar. Now the firepower in the alliance is set out in this uh, monolith as well. Aram is listed as having 20,000 foot soldiers and Israel having 10,000 foot soldiers. The chariots, the Arameans have 1,200. Israel has 2,000. We have 2,000 chariots. Where do we get that? Well, we're going to talk about that in a minute. It seems a little bit surprising that we have that many chariots. Well, when we start thinking about what we just, what we just said, um, one point I definitely will need to mention at this time is that the battle of Shalmaneser III at Karkar is dated. Whereas in the monolith, it gives us a date. It's the sixth year of his reign on the 14th of Iyar, Pesach Sheni, on the sixth year of his reign, and that turns out to be 853 BCE. 853. And that year is the same year where the battle of Achav and Ben-Hadad is supposed to have taken place in chapter in Perikhaf. So now that we're going to take a look at Perikhaf versus our archaeological find in the monolith, uh, we have a number of contradictions. The first of which is the number of soldiers and chariots. Well, in Tanakh, we just said we gathered everybody all together and how many did we get? 7,000 people. Suddenly we have 10,000 people to go send to the front line in an alliance. And who do we leave at home? Forget about that. We still have 10,000 to send to the front line. And then in regards to chariots, we have 2,000 chariots. How could it be that we have 2,000 chariots? We didn't even mention chariots. In fact, the Arameans were saying, oh, the God of the Jews, they live in the mountains, so they don't have chariots. They can't work with the chariots. So how did we suddenly get 2,000 chariots? In fact, there was also an external source about Ashur, that when Ashur is in the height of its power, they have 2,000 chariots. And they were much bigger superpower than Yisrael was. So it's very surprising that we have 2,000 chariots. Now, the name of the king of Aram, we've been dealing with this guy forever in, in Perikhaf. What's his name? Ben-Hadad. But the monolith doesn't think it's Ben-Hadad. They mentioned the king of Aram as Hadad Ezer. And we don't know what to do with this. Are they the same guy? They're not the same guy. If they are the same guy, why do they have different names? And we know the word Hadad Ezer in Tanakh also appears as the king of Sova, but it's not the king of Aram. Whereas Ben-Hadad is usually exclusively an Aramean name. Well, finally, the main question perhaps is, what is the relationship between Aram and Yisrael in 853 BCE? Are they military allies, like we see in the Kirk monolith, they're fighting together against Ashur, or are they fighting each other? Are they having a battle? Are they enemies? Well, we're dealing with this type of a contradiction, and we have to figure out what kind of approach are we going to take to resolve this contradiction. Well, one option is we're going to fight contradiction with faith. We have a Tanakh. We believe in the Tanakh. What it says is what happened. And this other monolith, whatever it is, with all due respect to the person who wrote it, probably made a mistake. Maybe it's a different time period. Maybe it wasn't really what he meant. Somehow, to, de- to, to decide we're not going to deal with the monolith. We have our faith. What it says in the Tanakh, that's the beginning and the end. Uh, option two is to try to discredit this external finding. Meaning, we're going to look at the Kirk monolith itself. Within itself. Is there a problem with the Kirk monolith itself? So the first thing that they did when they found this Kirk monolith, they read through the whole thing, and sure enough it said we have a coalition of 12 kings, and then he goes on to list who are the kings. So they counted up all the kings, and there's only 11. So, well, if there's only 11, and he said 12, so already you see that there's certain things either missing, or it's a mistake, or he was sloppy, or he rounded up, and it's because he's playing with numbers, so maybe he's playing with numbers throughout the entire monolith. However, also in terms of trying to figure out whether or not he got the number of soldiers wrong, right? He said we had 10,000 to spare. Maybe he made a mistake in his legal cuneiform squiggly lines. Okay, here they are now. Okay, you can see the difference between how you write 100 and 1,000. And our scribe on the monolith added these two little squiggle marks, maybe, by mistake. Because it really looks close to where you write 100. He maybe wrote 
that little dot and this little symbol by mistake. He didn't do well in math. He didn't take Moed Bet in, in math today. So he, um, and he got it wrong. And that's why he made the mistake. Really, we only had 1,000 soldiers in the alliance. And he just made a mistake in his scribbles on the, on the, uh, on the monolith. So we try to discredit these findings. Perhaps yes, perhaps not. But we still, and according to this approach, we don't have an answer to our other question, which is, are they military allies or are they enemies? So let's try a different approach. We're going to try to harmonize and reconcile the sources that we find in archaeology and what we have in the Tanakh. In order to do this, let's take, uh, it's going to answer our question of why didn't Nachav kill Ben Haddad. So here's our map. Okay, you see you have Assyria, Syria, and Israel from north to south. And we are going to look at the different kingdoms here. If we're facing a possible Assyrian threat, and you're sitting in Shomron, and you're in the green, and you want to understand whether or not you want to kill Ben Haddad. Now Ben Haddad is this blue, and he has 32 kings under him. And you have, you have all these sub-districts going on. So, would it be wise to suddenly take over this entire blue Syria area and have a possible fifth column? Not a good idea if you're about to fight Assyria. So, the, instead of doing that, Ahab decides that he's going to join forces with Aram. And this way, he has a unified front to block Ashur. Now, it also allows for the battlefront to be taken from Yisrael to all the way to the north, to the, to the border of Assyria. And this way, Aram is going to be used as our buffer. And so long as we keep Ben-Hadad in control, and he's been the king there forever. He's been the king there for 35 years. He was the king back when Basha was the king. Remember that? He was the king when Basha was the king. So this is the same guy. He's still in charge of Aram. He has a good holding on the people of Aram. So if we keep him strong, we're going to be able to uh, hold off Ashur. Now, if we think about it a little bit more, we can try to understand what was Aram's initial plan. Aram's initial plan is that they're going to do the fight against Ashur on their own. And they figure we have enough fighter power in order to be able to ward off the threat of Ashur, but we'd like to have some additional monies, additional resources, and we're just going to take them from Israel because they're a small kingdom and they're not going to stop us and we can just conquer them in a minute. If they cause any trouble, we'll just smash them. So now, at the end, when Aram turns to Israel and is not given the resources that they're looking for, they have to start fighting with Israel and instead of having their 1-2-3 victory, they're suddenly defeated. And now is the time where the alliance needs to be formed. Whereas this battle that's in the Tanakh, it's not a contradiction to the alliance being formed. It's the reason why the alliance is being formed. Because Aram lost in this battle, that's why the, Ara- the Arameans are now looking to also join forces with Israel. So now we have additional chariots because we just beat Aram. All those chariots we just took from Aram, we're just donating them back. We didn't even take them back onto Israeli soil, to, to Israel. We put them back in Aram. We left them there. That's how come we have these additional chariots that we just beat from Aram. So we've able now to understand how Tanakh and archaeology can come together. And it looks like a brilliant plan. This is a great move, a great military move. And it does work, right? The Battle of Karkar, 853, look it up, that's it. We stopped Ashur. It was great. So why is God so angry? Why Why is it that God's saying, oh, that was the worst thing you just did. And because of that, I'm going to subject your nation to the fate of that nation instead. So we still have what to do. And if we look at the map, we understand that we were trying to form this alliance where Israel joined Aram to block Ashur. But there's another way of looking at possible military tactics. And that is, God was perhaps looking for us to do this. He wanted us to join Ashur and have Aram be our enemy. Aram is now defeated. Aram is weak. Now is the time that you can take over Aram and at least offer it up even to Ashur in order to have Ashur leave you alone. And this way you'll be allowed to be, instead of being what's called a province of Ashur, you'll become a vassal state of Ashur. Now what's the difference between those two? Well, Ashur had policies about what to do with conquering and not conquering different countries. If there was a battle and you gave them a hard time and then they won, 
So then they said, all right, we got to get rid of all these troublemakers. All these people are getting deported. We're changing populations. We bring populations from someplace else. We get rid of these people. And we're going to now establish in this town the star of Ashur. This is going to be our God. You have to pay homage to that. Everybody has to acknowledge the authority of Ashur and their gods. And that's why uh, being a province of Ashur is not something that God is interested in happening. In order to keep Israel in the land and to keep worshipping God, what has to happen is we have to join Ashur willingly. If we join Ashur willingly, then we're going to be able to decide to become a vassal state, which means we're going to pay our taxes, we're going to give over the trade routes, we're not going to have uh, the independence that we want in terms of getting all of the iron production for military weapons from Sidon, but we get to run our own inner lives as we please. So this is perhaps the idea that God had in mind, which is what Achav ruined when he let Ben-Hadad live. Well, how do we know that this is perhaps what was going on? Well, 12 years later, we have a new king instead of Achav, and instead of his sons, we have a fellow named Yehu, who becomes the king over Yisrael, and he takes over in a bloody revolution. He kills a lot of people, and uh, he says, you know what, I want to do over. I want to change what we just what Achav did wrong. I want to have religious reform. He kills all the Nevi'ah Baal also, whoever's left at that point, and now he goes to Ashur, and this is what you see in the slide before you, in the, what's called the Black Obelisk, discovered in 1846, now also in the British Museum. And this Black Obelisk shows um, Yehu bowing down and bringing tribute, Mincha, to Melech Ashur. So he's trying to undo what Achav did, and he's making Aram his enemy, and Ashur his ally. Unfortunately, it's too late. It wasn't the right time anymore. By the time this is going on, we have a new king not only in Israel, but we have a new king in Aram. And who's the new king in Aram? Chazael. Chazael is a very vicious, uh, a very vicious general of the Arameans. And here we have his being anointed by Elisha, right? God has already given this job to Eliyahu, but Eliyahu didn't do it. So Elisha is doing it. And he's anointing Chazael to be the king over Aram instead of Ben Hadad. And while he's doing this, he starts crying. And Chazael says, why are you crying? So Elisha the Navi says, You're going to do bad things to Am Yisrael. You're going to set fire to all their strongholds. You're going to kill all of their young men. You're going to dash all of their young children. You're going to hack at all of their pregnant women. And so Elisha is crying over the viciousness of Chazael. Well, we said that we now have an opportunity to harmonize and reconcile. And we understand now that the missed opportunity that Achav had by letting Ben-Hadad go uh, changed the course of history. That you couldn't change, the t- couldn't turn back the hands of time in the time of Yehu. But is that all that Tanakh is really all about for us? Isn't it something more that we want to gain from our learning of these prakim? Is it just this political alliance? Is it just how to deal with military strategy? So we have to perhaps come up with one more approach to try to understand that perhaps a deeper meaning, some theological message that we're going to have by dealing with the archaeology and with uh, the Tanakh. And that's perhaps if we approach this idea of redefining the genre that we so we felt we clearly defined earlier as battle narratives. Well, when we get to this, we have to first understand the difference between history and historiography. So history is an aggregate of past events. What happened? We want to have a record. This happened first in the chronological order, and then this one did that, and the other person did something else, as opposed to historiography, which is how history is recorded. Why did the person who wrote history write it the way they wrote it? Why are the events in Tanakh depicted in the way they're depicted? Why wasn't it brought from a different perspective? Why wasn't it brought shorter or longer? Why didn't we get some type of a different feel of the events that happened in that place if it wasn't for the way the Tanakh put it together? So, in order to get this idea of historiography, let's take a look at one more archaeological finds that were found in Ras Shamra in Ugarit, where Claude Schaefer in the early 1900s um, did a lot of archaeological digs, and they found in this entryway a palace of the Ugarites. This was the main sanctuaries, uh, and had in them hundreds, hundreds of tablets that described different things that were going on in Ugarit. Amongst them 
were the famous tablets that describe the cycle of Baal. Now we've been talking about Baal for a long time, right? This is the god that represented the uh, in Sidon. That's what Achav introduced in the worship of Israel. And the worship of Baal always involved with it a lot of commerce, Zahav, right? We have the Pasuk in Hosea, Vekesefir Betila, Vizahav Asu La Baal. The Baal is always associated with Kesef and Zahav, with trade. So the cycle of Baal is depicted here in brief form, right? So six tablets, so we're doing like six lines for six tablets. So we have three main gods in the pantheon that we're going to be dealing with, Baal, Yam, and Mot. Okay, so Baal is the god over the forces of nature, Yam over the sea, and Mot over death. Mot, like Mavet, is related to death. And perhaps it's more or less uh, corresponding to Zeus, Poseidon, and Hades. So Baal has a fight with Yam, and he beats Yam. And then when he finishes beating Yam, he wonders if he has his own house. He doesn't have his own house. So it's not just Zugot Se'irim. Even the gods can't afford a mashkanta. So the <laughs> Baal complains about getting the house. He finally gets a house, but now he's afraid that Yam is going to attack him. So he says to Mot, Mot, you should protect me. And Mot says, oh, that's, that's not my job. So he gets angry with Baal for even asking, and he banishes Baal to the underworld. And while in the underworld, Baal is still scared of Mot, and he says, you know what, I better make a double, a decoy of myself, because otherwise he's going to kill me. So he makes a double, and then, sure enough, the double is killed. Baal has a sister. Her name is Anat. It starts with the A. Okay, and Anat says to Mot, where is my brother Baal? And Mot says, oh, I ate him. Oh, so she gets really angry, and uh, she takes out her sword, and she's kill- she kills Mot. Then she grinds him up. Then she burns him. Then she takes all of these pieces and spreads them all over the ocean. And um, at that point, Mot is Mot. Mot can't die because he's in charge of death. So he gets reincarnated. And he's reincarnated and he has a battle with Baal. Baal comes out from hiding because Anat told him that he was safe, but little did she know. So Baal and Mot have it out. But at that point, Baal wins. Baal is okay. He can take over back on the, in terms of the forces of nature. He leaves the underworld. Now, this is not just some uh, DC comic, right? This is, a, this is the theology of the Baal uh, uh, religion. And what is it all about? It's the cyclical nature. It's the idea of agricultural cycles. Baal is the one who brings forth the crops. He's in charge of the rains. And when Baal goes to the underworld, it's the wintertime. Mot's in charge. That means there's no, uh, nothing is growing. And when it comes back to the springtime, that's when Baal was able to come back to the earth. So we have this idea that the entirety of the Baal religion is about cycles. And that's what's appealing to Am Yisrael. Because they're coming from the desert where there was no cycles. And they come into a place where there's agriculture, where everything is cycles. And the locals tell them, this is what works. Okay, This is the way it's, ha- it's going to happen. We can tell you from now. Every year is the same. It's cyclical. And God comes and says, I don't want you to think that way. The world in your life is not cyclical. It's not that you do everything over and over and over again. You have things that are linear. We're, we're going towards an acharita yamin. We're going towards establishing a kingdom in the name of God. We have things to go forward. We have a historical uh, uh, progression, not a cycle. And that's perhaps the underlying tension between the theologies of Baal and Yisrael. So with all this in mind, there was one more tremendous find within these tablets, which is that Baal is referred to in the tablets as Ben-Hadad. So the word Ben-Hadad takes on a new significance for us. It's not only the name that we're attributing to the king of Aram, which might have been Hadad-Ezer, but the person, the the author, uh, the Navi, who wrote the Tanakh in Melachim, wants us to associate that with Ben-Hadad as the king or the representation of Baal. Now, if we look through the Psukim, we're going to see that we have correspondences to the idea of how Baal drives this narrative. So if we see in Melachim, uh, in the parak that we read, the elders tell Achav, Al-Tishma, Al-Tishma and we have a very similar Pasuk that talks about the Mesitu Mediach, the person who's trying to incite you to worship Abu Zarah in Sefer Dvarim. And there it says, Similarly, what's the fate of that person supposed to be? But what does Achav do? He doesn't kill him. He keeps him alive. Finally, we have a correspondence in Perechaf Aleph, again mentioning this idea of hasata, of incitement to worship idolatry, that Izevel, his wife of Achav, incited him to do the evil. 
And it also corresponds to the incitement of Eshet Chekecha, the woman of your bosom, in Sefer Dvarim. So the comparisons with Perak Yud Gimel of Sefer Dvarim illustrate how the theme of incitement of, to idolatry drives the Achav narratives. Let's move on to other comparisons. One we've spotted with earlier was the comparison with Yericho. Remember we said to remember Yericho? So we're going to remember the Yericho here. And here it is now. We have the first one, which was the swear and the curse that Yehoshua made that we already talked about. And we also have this idea. The battle against Yericho. A battle against Yericho, they encircled for seven days. And on the seventh day, they engaged in the battle. And the same thing happened in Perichaf. They were facing each other off for seven days, and suddenly on the seventh day, they engage in battle. And finally, perhaps, oh, not yet, Vayaku Ish Isha, we see in Perichaf, people kill their corresponding enemy troop, and similarly, in Yehoshua, it says, Vayal Ha'am Ha'ira Ish Negdo, they conquer the person who is facing them. And here, perhaps, is the final connection, Vatipol Ha'choma. The, the wall of Yericho falls miraculously and allows for the conquering of the city. Similarly here in Afek, in Perak the wall of the city falls and we have the destruction of 27,000 more soldiers. So the parallels in the battle of Yericho show us that perhaps the battles against Ben-Hadad are really a reenactment of the battle against Yericho and Canaanite influence. That's really the battle that the, the text is trying to show us is going on between Achav and the king of Aram. We have other things, other connections, linguistic connections between our prakim. Now, if you remember, we also wanted to understand how is it that all these prakim tie together and why is Perichaf where it is. So if we see now these linguistic connections, perhaps we'll understand that the text is trying to tell us they all go together. All these prakim belong next to each other. Here in, in Melachim Aleph Perik Yutet, God tells Eliyahu Hanavi, I'm going to leave 7,000 people who don't bow down to the Baal. And who are the people fighting Ben-Hadad, i.e. Baal, in Perichaf? 7,000 soldiers, the other 7,000. That's why we have the same number of soldiers. Perhaps really we had many more, but the text is trying to teach us that it's really a theological battle that's going on. Similarly, the idea of the curses that are issued both by Ben-Hadad and Izevel have the terminology, in the plural. Right? Because they're referring to their idols. Um, we have Melachim Chaf versus Perek Yud Chet, where in both situations we have a double mention of what the purpose is that's going on, whether it's the battle against Aram or whether it's the showdown against the Baal. We have the idea that it's in order for everyone to know that God is God. So these ideas, again, they're showing us that really what the battle is against Ben-Hadad is a theological battle. It's not necessarily only a military front. The idea of Elohe Harim Elohehem, right? The Avadim of Melech Aram say, oh, their God wins in the mountains. So not only did they win in the mountains in the first Melchama, but they also won in the battle against Baal on the top of Har HaKarmel. And that's perhaps how the people who worshipped Baal justify to themselves continuing worship Baal after the showdown. Because after that, you would wonder, how in the world can anyone worship Baal anymore? They just showed up, that he wasn't able to perform. So it is that the people would walk around saying, oh, that's only in the mountains. But really, Baal is in charge of all the fields. He brings life to all the crops. He's in charge of the rains. So they were able to justify to themselves based on attributing God to the mountains. So again, these linguistic and thematic parallels between the chapters show us how really... All the chapters, including what we call the battle narratives, they're meant to be read together with the surrounding material as a unity. And they are all of the same genre, meaning they're really all epic prose. And they're really all polemics against the Baal. They're all to fight the influence of Baal. When we look through the whole chapters, we find that this idea of the swearing of Chai Hashem, this is something that leads us to connect all of the Prakim together. We have swears in the, in the honor of God, until finally the end, we have swears in the middle for Baal or for other idols. And finally again, back to swearing in the name of God. So we see that really these uh, swears is a theme that allows us to stitch together all the prakim. And finally, the idea that Ben-Hadad is ish Khermi, He is the man destined for annihilation. It comes also from the prakim in Devarim, where it says, V'lo tavi el betecha, 
you will become an abomination like the idol. We have an identity between the person and the idol and the Baal itself. You have an idea that he becomes the cherem. Ki cherem hu. He is the cherem. So if we put all of these summaries together of what we've been looking at, the ideas of the parallels to the battle, the comparisons with the Mesitu Mediach, the linguistic and thematic themes, we now know why it is that Perekhaf is where it is. They're really not battle narratives in Perekhaf, but it's a spoof on a battle narrative. It's really meant to be read as epic prose. It's being, you're being fooled into thinking that it's really a story about a battle. But really everything is a polemic against Baal. And why is it that Ahab didn't kill Ben-Hadad? Well, Ahab's foreign policy opted for keeping Ben-Hadad, meaning Baal, strong as an ally in order to maintain control over the trade routes and to keep his military power in maintaining Israel, instead of maintaining Israelite identity and worshipping only God. So I hope that in our lecture today, we illustrated how you can use an interdisciplinary approach to allow you to make full use of archaeological findings to enhance your knowledge of the historical period, which in turn fueled our literary reading. And that led us to be able to call a theological message of maintaining our religious identity over economic and egocentric aspirations. So if nothing else, let's take that message home with us today. Thank you.